0: As we begin this morning, I want to ask a question. How do you make the biggest decisions in your life? What's the grid? As you process and think through the big decisions, the ones that define you, the ones that attach to your identity, like who you'll marry, what political party you're going to vote for, what career path are you going to take? where you're going to live? What are going to be the issues that you champion? And most importantly, how do you decide what worldview faith belief system that you will hold? See, these are kind of the big decisions in our lives, and they say a lot about who we are. And we'd like to think that when we come to these big decisions, we do so with objective reasoning, careful study, reasoned response. As we gather all the data, then we make the best possible decision that we can. But the reality is actually much different. Jonathan Haidt, who is a professor at NYU, uh, he spent his whole career studying how do people actually make these really formative and big decisions, the life-defining ones. And in his book, The Righteous Mind, he argues that people actually make most of their decisions emotionally rather than logically he uses this analogy i find helpful he calls it the rider and the elephant and here's what he says he says if our emotions are like an elephant reason is a rider perched on top he says most of our decisions are gut reactions our intuitions are as strong and unwieldy as an elephant and then our reasoning comes later to justify our decisions only through hard work can the rider get the elephant to switch directions. You see, there's this principle at work inside of all of us that if we want something to be true, if we desire it to be true, when we look at the evidence, we ask, is there enough evidence so that I can believe it, that it's reasonable? But if we don't want something to be true, we ask, is there so much evidence that I have to believe it, that I must believe it, where I've ruled everything else out, and all that's left is believing it. You see, there's a different degree of skepticism that you might have depending on your desire for it to actually be true or not. And according to social psychologists, that's how we're wired. See, we think we come to these decisions as impartial investigators, trying to figure out what's going on. But the reality is is that most of us are more like biased lawyers, already arguing for our side, subconsciously grabbing the facts and the data and the arguments that support our side, and we leave out the things that don't um, support our side. We immediately jump to ways that we can explain away anything that contradicts the side we favor. So as we come to the resurrection this morning, what are those hidden motivators inside all of us? There's not a single person in the room right now who doesn't have them. And just like trying to change the direction of that elephant, it takes a lot of work for us to actually be able to hear and receive things that we may not want to hear. So what's the elephant that drives us as we come to the resurrection story this morning? Because you see, the resurrection is the hinge of the Christian faith. Everything moves and swings In fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people are to be most pitied. What he's saying is, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, this whole thing is a sham. It's just a show and it's a really lame hobby at that. The resurrection is the hinge on which all Christianity swings. It's the hub that holds all the spokes in place. It is the capstone which holds the entire structure of Christianity together. It is not peripheral. It is not inconsequential. It is paramount. When Christians say that Jesus rose from the dead, we are making a historical claim, not merely a religious one. I mean, Yes, the resurrection has a ton of of religious implications, but we are actually saying that this is something that happened. It's either fact or fiction, true or false. It either happened or it didn't. And my hope this morning is that we would take an honest look at the resurrection and that it would challenge our minds, it would compel our hearts, and it would change our life. So first, let's dive in and look at how the resurrection challenges our minds. Look with me at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, So last week, we looked at the unjust trials and the brutal death of Jesus on the cross. And if you're following the timeline, the scriptures tell us that it's Friday about 4 p.m. And in just a couple of hours, the Sabbath will begin, which starts Friday at sunset, according to the Jewish reckoning of time. And so they have to get the body off the cross and buried quick for two reasons. One, Jewish law said that a body had to be buried on the same day that it died. And secondly, you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. So time is pressing in, and they've got to get Jesus buried. And at this point, we're introduced to a new character, someone we haven't seen before. His name is Joseph, and he's from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And from Mark and the other gospels, we learn that he's a rich man, and he's a member of that that religious elitist group called the Sanhedrin. That's the very group that put Jesus to death. They were the ones clamoring on Pilate's door for him to crucify him. He's a member of this council. But from another gospel, we also learn that he's a disciple of Jesus. And Luke tells us that he did not consent to the decision and the actions of the council to have Jesus killed. And we also know that he's looking for the kingdom of God. Now, I found this as I was prepping this week to be such good news. Here's why. It shows us that God is in the business of saving people from the most unlikely of places. If you look in the gospel, the Sanhedrin has never been for Jesus. They've always been antagonistic to him. And yet here is one who God has pulled out from among the religious elite who don't think they need salvation and said, he's one of mine. What's also fascinating is that this disciple Joseph, who we've not seen before, He's stuck around when all of his other disciples have fled. He knows someone must claim Jesus's body or he's gonna be tossed in a mass grave with the other criminals. And so Joseph, it says he took courage and he went to Pilate to ask for the body so that he could give Jesus an honorable burial. Pilate has unlimited power. All he has to do is wave his hand and he can have Joseph put to death. He may have suspected that he was gonna steal the body and to try to create some hoax, he could have said, get out of here, and on his way out, had him killed. We find out that Pilate is surprised that Jesus has already died. Because you see, when a person is nailed to a cross, they could survive up there for up to 24 hours, even longer if you're just tied. You see, crucifixion is a slow process. Painful death by suffocation, so here 's what happens with each passing hour, you lose energy, you lose vigor, and you lose the ability to pull up to take a breath because you 're kind of hanging here like this. and what happens is is over the course of time, you start to lose oxygen, and what happens is, is internally as you lose oxygen, there's damage to your tissue and the vessels. And when that happens, it causes fluids to diffuse out of your organs, and it dumps into the body, filling your lung sac and filling the sac around your heart with fluid. And eventually, you suffocate to death, essentially drowning from the inside. It's a brutal death. And the gospel writers tell us that when Jesus died, he gave out a loud cry. If you think about that for a minute, that would have been virtually impossible for somebody who's suffocating and drowning on the inside. The gospel writers tell us that when Jesus died, he gave up his spirit. The God of life let go of his life. He willingly gave it up. But Pilate isn't privy to all that. He doesn't know. So he's shocked. He's like, how is he already dead? So he asked for a centurion to go and confirm the story. See, what happened is when they looked like they had died, to make sure they hadn't just merely passed out, the soldiers would pierce them from underneath them to see if they were already dead. And if they weren't, that usually kind of did the job, right? And at that point, John tells us blood and water flow from his wounds. Now, here's why there's both blood and water. See, remember I told you that his body was filling up internally with fluids around the heart sac and around the lungs. So when he's pierced like that, that's why blood and water come down. And so the centurion confirms that Jesus has in fact died. So Pilate gives Joseph his body. Now this represents the first challenge to our minds that I want to make today. Because see, Jesus wasn't kind of dead or mostly dead. How many of you are thinking about the princess bride right now? Okay, good. So was I. You remember that scene when Miracle Max said that Wesley wasn't dead? He said, no, no, no. Your friend is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. That's not what's going on with Jesus. Some people think maybe he was just mostly dead, like on the brink of death. They got him in the tomb, and then Jesus unwrapped himself, rolled away the stone after you know hours on the cross, and then found his friends all beat up and bloody and was like, they didn't get me. That's not what's going on. Jesus died. If there's one thing the Romans are good at, it's killing people. They're a machine. They do this for a living every single day. He wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. Look with me at verse 46. Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped Jesus in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So picking up in the story, Joseph, he takes the corpse, and he brings him to a tomb, Now, Matthew's gospel tells us it's not just any random tomb. It's a tomb that he owns, and it's one that's been cut out of a rock. These rock-cut tombs were very labor-intensive. Imagine them with primitive tools cutting this thing out. They're very expensive. Only wealthy families could afford them. And what we know about Jesus' life is he's not wealthy. He's middle class at best. And at the end, none of his family is around to help pay for this thing. His disciples have all fled. And it's Joseph who steps up. You see, Joseph saw him die. Nothing about his death was dignified. And this disciple wants to make sure, at the very least, that he has a dignified burial. And this, begins, this presents another challenge to our minds. You see, back in Isaiah 53, verse 9, which was written, by the way, about 800 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, speaking about the Messiah Isaiah said, and this Messiah who will die for us, they're gonna intend to bury him with the criminals, but he's going to end up in a rich man's tomb. You can go look it up, Isaiah 53, verse nine. But instead of being tossed in some mass grave or left for animals, Joseph buries him in what? A rich man's tomb. Did you know, you go through the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, 300 that refer to the place he's going to be born, what his life is going to be like, even kind of what he's going to look like, what he's going to do, and most importantly, how he's going to die. There's over 300 of them. And Lee Strobel's classic work, The Case for Christ, he says this, someone did the math and figured out that the probability of just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. I don't even know what that means, honestly. Put it another way. If you, took this, if you took this number, 100 million billion silver dollars, they would cover the state of Texas where I'm from. And by the way, if you've never been to Texas, it's massive. Huge. You can drive all day and never leave it. If you took that many silver dollars, it would cover Texas to a depth of two feet. If you marked one of those silver dollars among them and threw it in and then had someone blindfolded and said, go find that one, the chances of that person finding that coin is one in 100 million billion. That's just eight out of the 300. My brain can't even comprehend the over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It's a challenge for our minds, isn't it? We've got to do something with that kind of evidence. Meanwhile, back at the tomb, Joseph is working against the clock to get Jesus buried before sundown. So he quickly but lovingly wraps him up in burial clothes, lays him in a tomb, and then a large stone is rolled against the entrance. Mark makes sure to point out that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So there's some people who know exactly where the tomb is. And Matthew's gospel tells us that they put guards at the tomb entrance to make sure there's no funny business, no schemes, no tricks, no cons, which is another challenge to our minds, because there's some people out there who think, well, maybe uh, the the disciples rallied together, they got back to the tomb, and they stole his body. They're going to have to get through some Roman guards for that to happen, See, the religious elite suspect that there could be one last trick up this imposter's sleeve. So they send a guard of soldiers. This is not like one or two guys. A guard of soldiers to protect the tomb. Nobody goes in, nobody goes out. So the claim that the disciples stole the body and hid it doesn't add up either. Look at verse 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go in and anoint him. And very early on on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Remember, they knew where it was, right? And when they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? So Saturdays passed in silence. Jesus went in the tomb on Friday, stayed there Saturday. Now it's Sunday, the first day of the week. It's the first time the women are able to go and properly bury the body. They bring all these spices Um, Scholars suggest up to 75 pounds of spices to uh, preserve that body. See, Joseph had buried him in an honorable haste, but the job was not complete. So they needed to go in and finish the job. Look at verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Marcus said that like five times now. It's a large stone. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, but who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? So what happens next is unexpected. See, as they're walking up, what did they say? Who, who's gonna roll away this stone? They're wondering, are we gonna have to convince the Roman soldiers to let us in? Or at best, we're gonna show up and there's going to be nobody there. and We're going to be on our own, three women, to roll away this very large stone, which would have been difficult, if not impossible, for them. And when they arrive, they see that the stone's actually already rolled away. Matthew tells us that, there had, that the earth had, had shaked and quaked as an angel rolled back the stone, and it made all the Roman guards pass out. And as they approach the tomb, they see this man sitting on, a, on the stone, It's an angel from God, and he tells them, do not be alarmed. I know this scene looks upsetting. You seek Jesus. He's risen. He's not here. Look at the place where they laid him. This is probably the most massive challenge for the mind because death is empirically final to us. Full stop. It's irreversible despite the fact that Jesus made predictions over and over and over to his disciples, no one expected God to raise him from the dead. When you see someone crucified, you just go, there's no coming back from that. It's too tragic, it's too condemning, it's too severe, it's too powerful, it's too final. Crucifixion is the period at the end of the sentence. And so the skeptic in the room might be thinking, okay, This cannot be history. This is the stuff that legends are made of. There's no way Jesus rose from the dead. There's a British scholar named Richard Bauckham who has studied ancient historiography his whole life. And he says that all these accounts have the marks of the way history was written back in those days. He says that ancient historians would give way more credibility to oral history of still living eyewitnesses. See, they, they put these stories, the, when, when you're writing history, you would put already still living credible sources in there with their names so that you could go back and ask them. That's why Mark and the other gospel writers have made sure to tell you who it was that first went in to the, sea, uh, to the tomb. It's not just some women came, it's Mary, the mother of James, Mary, the mother of Joseph, Mary Magdalene, Salome. They were there. This is written about 20 or 30 years after the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, they could have gone back and said, hey, tell us again, what did you see? This allows them to be corroboration, cross-examination. See, living eyewitnesses were always the primary choice for history. And the gospel writers have made sure to write down their names. So you can go and ask them. The other problem with this being legend or being fabrication is that nobody writing in ancient history would have made women the first eyewitnesses. This is actually one of the most credible sources to me. In fact, to us we hear it and we don't even flinch, right? Because women have made a whole lot of progress in our day and age and there's still more work to do, but that's for another day. But the point is, readers of these gospels, it would have been shocking. They would have thought, you listed them? Really? Because in this culture, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. They were a nobody. In fact, one ancient writer named Celsus who lived about 80 years after Jesus said, there's no way Christianity could be true because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. The guy would not be popular today. <laughs> but think about it. If the gospel writers were making this up, would they have listed women as the first witnesses of the most crucial part of the gospel? No. If you're making this up, you're going to write somebody who has pedigree. You're going to say, man, this guy who's trustworthy, everybody knows him, this is the guy who saw it. Wink, wink. Pay him off, and then he'll tell your story, right? The only reason Mark would write that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection is because that's actually how it all went down. This is a historical document. This really happened. And you might be thinking, well, ancient people, aren't they kind of gullible? Aren't they easily fooled? Maybe they just don't really know what death looks like. Really? These are people who are way more acquainted with death than we are. There's no modern medicine. People died and did not come back from the dead. By the time you were 30, you had buried more people than we have. Further, if the disciples believed that what Jesus had said, if they had believed that someone could be raised from the dead and they were that gullible, wouldn't they have been there on that third day just to see? When he died, wouldn't they go, it's no big deal. He's gonna rise from the dead. But they're nowhere to be found. Nobody was expecting this. The disciples are gone All hope is lost. The women come with 75 pounds of burial spices. Why? Because they think there's a body there to finish burying. Resurrection was as inconceivable to them as it is to us today. So what explains what would change their minds about the resurrection of Jesus? What explains how this small, sorry excuse for a movement in some back corner of the Roman Empire didn't crumble after the death of its leader? How did it go on to become the largest religious faith on earth that has spanned time and geography and people group? The only explanation is that those first disciples allowed the evidence to change their minds. It challenged them. They let the evidence demand a different verdict about what they believed to be true. So friends, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to be intellectually honest and let the evidence of the resurrection challenge our worldview? Do you, do I, have the intellectual integrity to let the evidence actually challenge your minds? Or have you already made up your mind about it? Tim Keller says it this way. You have to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for how this little group exploding and changing the world did so when no other group did. You have to come up with an explanation for why hundreds and hundreds of people said that they actually saw him and that it changed their lives and that they spent the rest of their lives preaching about it and dying happily for it. The resurrection challenges our mind, but not only that, it compels our heart. Look at verse 7 but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and there you'll see him just as he told you. Now we find out that the women are told to go and tell his disciples that he's risen, that he wants to see them in Galilee. And this is more than just directions for what to do next. I mean, think about it. They had abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. No one sticks up for Jesus at his trials. Nobody is there to carry his cross. Nobody except Joseph is there to bury him. No one even bothered to show up on the third day to see if he had told the truth about him being raised from the dead. They're overwhelmed by fear. They're dejected by what they saw and they lack faith to come and behold the wondrous mystery of resurrection. And yet what does Jesus do upon raising from the dead? He says, I desire to be with you. Do you remember way back in chapter three when we were talking about what it means to be a disciple and Jesus first called them and he gave them their job description? The first and foremost thing on their job description was to be with him. Before he said, go do this in my name, go do that, go that, he said the primary thing about being my disciple is just be with me. He doesn't make them beg. He doesn't make them grovel. He doesn't give them a list of to-dos for penance. He doesn't put a guilt trip on them. He doesn't shame them. In fact, he forgives them even before they've had an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. Before they can even say they're sorry, Jesus is saying, I'll be there with you. Come, gather with me. I want to see you. He is drawing near to them before they've even taken a step toward him. That is grace. Despite our failures, God moves towards us in love. Tim Keller commenting on this passage said, he's forgiving them before they've even repented. He's forgiving them, in fact, so that they can repent. What's even more, Mark lists Peter's name. That's significant. Here's why. You remember, Peter's the one who was so filled with bravado on that night in which Jesus was betrayed, remember? He said, Jesus told him, hey, all of you are gonna deny me. And Peter stands up, back straight, chest out and says, no, no. All of these guys are gonna uh, abandon you, but not me. I will go with you to the death. And Jesus told him, actually, you're gonna deny me three times. And sure enough, all it took was a little servant girl. And he denied him. And he abandoned him. Of all the disciples, who do you think needs to hear his name the most? When the women go back to tell the disciples, don't you think if he had just said, hey, he wants to see you guys, don't you think Peter's going to be like, not me. He doesn't want to see me. Not after what I've done. And they could say, no, Peter, you don't understand. He specifically mentioned your name. He wants to see you. A few weeks ago, Kevin talked about how in the coming days, Jesus would pull Peter aside, fully restore him, fully forgive him, and let him know that he loved him deeply. And Peter would go on to be the leader of the early church. Restored again, he goes on to courageously lead this early church to face opposition and great persecution, and the gospel spreads like wildfire. See, the resurrection compels the heart, Because it operates in grace, not performance. See, the rule of performance is you have to earn forgiveness, right? You have to earn the impact in the life of resurrection. Under the rule of works, you get saved if you're really good enough, if you work hard enough, if you are morally and spiritually strong. But that, friends, leads to pride and rejection. See, if you succeed and you are really strong and good, you have you to thank, right? Right? You get the self-pat on the back. You walk into the room entitled and deserving, saying, I've done it all. But how long can you keep that up? Because if you live life long enough, you're going to find out you're really not good enough. You can't keep the act going. And at some point, you fail. And you fall. And you trip. And you stumble. And then dejection settles in. And you realize, I haven't measured up. You fail once, okay, not a big deal. You fail twice, no big deal. But then that cycle just keeps going. And then what do you say sometimes? You just say, screw it. I'm never gonna be good enough. So there's no use trying. Now, some people may recover from that cycle of sin. Some don't. But regardless, if you live 20, 30, 40, 50 years, eventually, when you're honest with yourself, you realize I don't measure up. I have not performed enough. And the cycle of sin and guilt and shame is exhausting. And it's crushing. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the resurrection is one of grace. Thanks be to God that that's how he operates. See, Jesus lived the life we could never live, and he did it in our place. Then Jesus died the death we should have died in our place. And the resurrection says that he is saying to the disciples and he's saying to you and me, to every screw up, to every goody two shoes, he's saying, regardless of what you've done, come be with me. doesn't matter how bad you've screwed it up. I want to be with you. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. The lower Jesus stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. You see, Jesus stooped way down to meet us where we are. He's forgiven us before we've even mustered up the words to say, I'm sorry. All that's left is to let that kind of grace, to let that kind of forgiveness compel your heart to go to him. And trust me, I know that's hard. That means we have to actually be honest with ourselves. We have to actually admit that we failed. That means we have to admit that we don't measure up and then we have to face him. And I don't know about you, but admitting that I'm wrong feels like death. I hate saying that I'm wrong. I would much rather give you all the excuses, all the justifications for why I deserve a pass, but that's not accepting God's forgiveness. That's actually arguing with him and telling him, I don't need your grace. I just need you to give me a pass. Grace is saying, I know I don't deserve it. I know I'm not good enough. And the empty tomb this morning means this. Your sins are forgiven. What happens when a criminal is put in jail? He's got to fulfill that sentence. And it's only until that sentence is fully satisfied that the law finally has no claim on him. And then you get to walk out free. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what he said to us back in Mark 10, 45. He said, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. And the empty tomb is evidence that he fully satisfied that payment price. You know why? Because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The law had no more claim on him. The sentence was complete, and when he walked out, it was a stamp on our verdict saying, the sentence is paid in full. I know, coming to that realization can feel like a death, and it should be, but that's the power of the resurrection. Jesus brings dead things to life. Come to him in your death, and he will give you life. That's the resurrection. That's the power. That's the life. That's how beauty comes from ashes. And that's what changes your heart. And when he changes your heart like that, the only right response is to worship him. So the resurrection challenges our mind, it also compels our hearts. And lastly, it changes our lives. Look at verse 8. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if you remember back at the beginning of verse seven, it said for them to go and tell the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And it says the women left, not with courage and faith immediately, but with trembling and astonishment. Mark tells us that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What Mark is stressing in this gospel is that the news of the resurrection, it shook them. It was overwhelming. And as they processed it, It caused a paralyzing fear, fear of the unknown, fear of having their hopes raised only to be let down again, fear that this might be some kind of sick joke, fear that no one, when they told them, would believe them. If you look at the Bible, if you look at your Bibles, you'll see this is is actually where Mark's gospel ends. It's really abrupt. It's really sudden And if you're looking at your Bible, you might also see that there's verses 9 through 20 in there, and it probably has some brackets on it, maybe even a little inscription that says the earliest and best manuscripts don't include these verses. Mark's sudden ending is actually what he wanted. Verses 9 through 20 were added later to sort of smooth out the ending to kind of resolve that abruptness. Almost all biblical scholars agree on it. The really nerdy guys that get paid the big bucks to figure out the ancient manuscripts, they, they all agree that this was probably added years later. Now, the good news is you can read it. It's fine. There's nothing heretical in there. There's more that could be said about the longer ending of Mark. We talked on and on about it in seminary. If you want to talk with me more about that at the end, I can tell you why it's not supposed to be in there. We can t- uh, we're going to put a link in the weekly sync about it that goes into more detail But we want to read Mark as he intended it. The end is abrupt, and it's literary genius. Because the whole time, Mark has been challenging us to ask, who is Jesus? In the first half of Mark, we see his crown and his authority, right? Everywhere Jesus goes, he's able to change things. He's got power over disaster and demons and disease and death. He's got the power to literally undo the effects of a fallen and cursed world. And in the second half of Mark, we see the reality of the cross. And we see Jesus start predicting that he's going to die. And his disciples did not know how to respond. So there's been this question, how will they respond when Jesus dies? Friends, let me ask you, how are you responding to his death? How are you responding to the news of his resurrection. And that's the point of this ending. Mark has stopped it on a a dime and said, what will you do? Will you go and tell? Or will you be crippled by fear? Throughout Mark, we've seen over and over that places of fear are actually opportunities for faith. They're opportunities for faith and belief. Now, we know that as we piece everything together from the other gospels, we realize that the women didn't stay silent. They actually did go and tell. They process everything and hope overcomes doubt. Fear, uh, faith replaces fear and they do go and tell. And I love that Mark shows the disciples in their weakness. It shows us that faith and discipleship don't come easy, which means there's hope for you and me when it feels like following Christ isn't easy, this should be hopeful for us, that at the end, they were scared, they were filled with fear. So there's gonna be times when we are as well. What it means is that God uses imperfect people with imperfect faith to accomplish his purposes and his work. And these brave women overcome their fear. They lean into the good news, and they told their friends the good news that Jesus had risen. Were there unknowns as they walked into that room? for sure. Would they be taken seriously? Who knows? In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that that when they first told the disciples, they thought they were uh, spinning an idle tale, that basically these women were hysterical, that they didn't know what had happened. But despite the unknowns, they walked in faith to go and tell about Jesus. See, if it's true that Jesus was raised from the dead and that his life can be your life, then there's nothing in this world that you can't face. The greatest threat to your life, death itself, has been undone. It's been swallowed up. The greatest suffering that you could ever endure has been undone. That doesn't minimize the suffering that we face, that it it hurts and it's painful and it's hard. And that's why the Bible says we can weep with those who weep and we should. Life is not a bed of roses, but because our greatest enemy, sin and death, has been defeated, we know it won't have the final word. That changes how you live your life. That changes how we face tomorrow. There's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata, if you're not familiar with her. She, when she was 18 years old in a swimming accident, became a quadriplegic. And she talks about, in her autobiography, about the power of the resurrection to her as one who's paralyzed from the neck down. In fact, she talks about how she longs to be able to kneel and worship God, and yet she can't get out of her chair. And it was one Easter morning when she reflected on this, and she said these words. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Can you imagine the hope that gives someone who's just manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy other than biblical faith promises us new bodies, not just new minds and hearts. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people like me find such enormous hope to live. The resurrection means there's hope. It's a new way to see the world through the lens of resurrection. And that is news that's too good to keep to yourself. That's how this book ends. Go and tell. Go and tell everyone you know that Jesus is risen. That's his victory over death and sin. And that means we can have it all. We can have forgiveness. We can have hope. We have life over death. It tells us that suffering will come to an end. That every sad thing will come untrue. I love the way Anne Lamott says it. She says, because of the resurrection, we are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world. There's Good Friday all around us. Death, brutality, hate, injustice, racism. It's a Good Friday kind of world. But we're an Easter people. We believe The resurrection is true, and it means all Good Fridays come to an end. So friends, as I close, something incredible happened 2,000 years ago. Either the biggest movement in history was maliciously spread like cancer on the back of a fabricated lie that people knowingly died for, or the God of the universe really did come down He really did enter into humanity to take on our sin, to die in our place, and to rise from the grave. One of those two things happened. Both of them sound ludicrous, and yet, in some way, one of them is absolutely true. And what you believe changes everything. Every one of us, at some point in our life, is going to have to make a decision about what we believe about the resurrection. It either happened or it didn't. And my hope is that you would see the resurrection not just as some story that's being told, but as the greatest story that could ever be told and that you would let it challenge your mind, compel your heart, and change your life. Let's pray.